The creation of the world, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under this, the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let 
the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We turn to Romans 1. Verses 20 to 23. Romans 1, 20 to 23. For his, God's, invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Johan. That is a lot of scripture to read, and I love his voice. We could just have him read scripture for us the entire year and a half of this series, and we would be... <laughs> okay, now wait a second. Wait a second. Well, let your appreciation of Johan be an insult to me. Okay. No, all right, so we began last week with an introductory sermon to our new series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And if you missed last week, I'd encourage you uh, to give a listen to it because I put together what I think is the snapshot of the end to where the whole story is moving uh, in Revelation. And if I uh, didn't think it was helpful for you. I wouldn't have preached it uh, last week. So I think it would be helpful for you to listen uh, to that sermon. We also uh, put together, you should have got it on your way in, uh, a Bible reading plan. And so uh, with your bulletin, you would have got one of these. And uh, this tracks along with the sermon series. So maybe you've always wanted to read the whole Bible, but it's, it's kind of ambitious and there's a lot of stuff in there. And so this is a little bit more manageable. Uh, you would just read along with the passages or the uh, themes that we'll be covering every week throughout the sermon series. So this will help you if you haven't read the whole Bible. It won't take you through the whole Bible, but it'll take you through the whole story of the Bible. And it'll help you track along with the stories uh, that we'll be taking uh, into account in the sermons as well. The other thing uh, that we gave to you as a resource was in the Friday email, and hopefully you all saw that. But in the Friday email, we highlighted the Bible Project videos. And we've, I think, used that a time or two uh, here. So you may be familiar with it. But the Bible Project takes each book of the Bible and puts it in together in a short video that's kind of sketch, drawing, prezi presentation. They're very well done. And they give a summary of each book of the Bible. So uh, you can use that to track along as well with uh, whatever Bible reading plan you might be doing or with the story of the Bible. So uh, make use of either of those. I would encourage you. But today we start with the first chapter of our story, which takes us, of course, to the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis 1 is famously the account of the world's creation, not from a modern scientific perspective, but from an ancient theological perspective that is just as true and just as meaningful today as it was when it was first written. The Genesis account of creation was written to help humans, past and present, to understand some primal and some basic truths about the world, about us and who we are, and about God who made both. 
So here's what we're going to do this morning as we begin with uh, this story and this account of creation. I'm going to take us through three movements of the sermon. The first part of the sermon, we're going to look at Genesis 1, which has been read for us, and we're going to highlight the goodness and beauty of the material world. And then second, second part of the sermon, I want to note two of the main ways that human beings misuse the goodness and the beauty of the material world. And then finally, I want to close out by listening to the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans 1, which was also read for us, which teach us the proper way to approach the goodness and beauty of the world. All right? So three basic parts uh, to our sermon today. And we begin with Genesis 1. There's a lot here in Genesis 1. I'm not going to try to hit everything that's in Genesis 1. There's a lot of just fascinating, beautiful things. But what I want to do is to focus instead uh, more narrowly on the theme of Genesis 1. What is the theme of creation? When the curtain to our story of the Bible lifts, as it were, and the play or the drama begins, what we have is a formless, dark, watery void over which the Spirit of God is hovering. And then what follows from there is an account of the creation and the ordering of the cosmos, of the world, and then of this, the whole cosmos in six consecutive days. The lights are made, and then the ocean, the land, the vegetation, the planets, the stars, the sea creatures, the birds, and the land, mammal, land animals, and then finally, humanity. And we're going to be getting to humanity next week, so I'm not going to spend really any time here uh, looking at the uh, creation account with respect to humanity. We have here the creation of the material world that we see and live in and experience today. And I want to note a few things here in this account. I want to note first the indirect way that God speaks the world into being. Look at this. At the beginning of each day, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, 11, so forth, when God creates, when he speaks the word of creation, what's the first word that he uses? Let. He uses the word let, right? It's kind of an indirect sort of... Uh, let this happen, let this happen, let this happen. There's, there's kind of this, this indirect way that he's speaking. He not only speaks uh, creation into existence, but in this manner of speaking, he's inviting creation to participate in God's creative activity. Creation is told to do something. So we can see this most clearly in day three with the creation of the vegetation, you can see that in verse 11, God says, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants yielding seed and so forth and so forth, right? God himself doesn't, the text tells us, step in and create the plants, but he creates the earth and then he invites the earth to produce the plants and the vegetation. All throughout Genesis 1, we see creation responding to this divine invitation to be created and to participate in creation. So we see creation sprouting and bringing forth and bearing and ruling and swarming and moving and flying and multiplying and creeping. That creation is participating in what God is doing in creation. I have this kind of imagery in my mind similar to 
to you thinking about a Christmas play with little kids, right? And so if you've ever been to a Christmas play with little kids, like they do the manger scene and you have some of the kids are dressed like sheep and some of the kids are dressed like camels and angels and whatnot, right? And so if you're practicing for the Christmas play as the director, you might have all of your kids in costume off stage, right? And then the director would say, let the sheep come forth. And then the sheep kind of tumble onto the stage and they go to their place on the meadow, right, wherever the meadow is. And then the director would say, let the shepherds come forth and shepherd the sheep. And then the shepherds come out in their costume with their staffs and they take care of the sheep, you know, and so, so forth and so forth until the director has called forth onto the stage all the characters of the Christmas play. This it seems to be what's going on here in Genesis. God is creating creation, but then he's calling it forth to take its place upon the stage of all that exists. And creation, as it is called forth and participates and responds to God, it does so happily and eagerly, which, of course, is what we would expect from a creation that has been blessed by God. I don't know if you noticed that or caught that, but in verses 22 and then 28, twice in the kind of narrative of creation, God speaks a blessing upon what he has made. And in the book of Job, God is in dialogue with Job, and God uh, tells Job that on the day of creation, the stars were so happy to be created that they sang for joy. But most importantly here in this narrative, what I want to draw our attention to is God's own assessment of his work, starting in verse 4, and then it moves on throughout all of chapter 1. When God makes something, he looks at it, and then he sees it as good. The light is good. The sea and the dry land are good. The vegetation is good. The planets and stars are good. The sea creatures are good. The birds of the air are good. The land creatures are good. Seven times, Throughout this chapter, God makes something, then he steps back, he looks at what he's made, and he says, oh, that's good. That's very good. And the main point of Genesis 1, I think, is that God has made the material world both beautiful and good. We see this in verse 31, which is the end of the chapter. God has finished making everything. He steps back from everything that he's made. Look at verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Right, that's the theme and the summary, really, of Genesis chapter 1, is that God has made everything good. The material world is a blessed and happy and joyful creation. Not only then, when it was first made, but, but even now, the world is just crazy beautiful. I don't know if you've ever seen that BBC uh, series called Planet Earth. There's a couple seasons of it. If you've ever watched that series, it's just fascinating, the, the world that God has made and all the complexity and beauty and the intricateness to what he has created. It's just so full of color and vitality and life. And God made the world to be that way. It was on purpose. It's true that humanity comes along. We'll read about this in Genesis 3 comes along, kind of muddles things up, takes some of the shine off of the world. We haven't treated it as well as we should. But it's still, we can still see and experience the rich beauty and extraordinary goodness of the world. From the deepest deeps to the furthest heavens, the whole creation is full 
of the glory that God baked into it from the very beginning that we see here in Genesis 1. And then all throughout Scripture, we continue on through Scripture, this is a a reoccurring theme, is that Scripture celebrates and draws attention to the beauty and the goodness of the world that God has made. The psalmists do this. We can see examples of it in Psalm 104 and then 119. The psalmists extol the glories and wonders of creation. And the end of the book of Job, as I've already mentioned, God himself is highlighting the extraordinary beauty and complexity of the world that he's made. So if we want to sum up chapter 1, the very beginning of our story, it's not only has God created the world, but he created a very good world, a world full of joyous beauty and wonderful goodness. So what was humanity supposed to do with all this beauty and all of this goodness? Before we answer that question, let me get to the second part of our sermon and highlight two ways, I think, that we misuse or misappropriate all of this beauty and goodness. See if this uh, fits with perhaps some things in your life. If you've been around Calvary for any length of time, you know that I like my ditches. The staff teaches, teases me about my ditches. There's a ditch on the right. There's a ditch on the left. The truth is down the middle, right? And so as we're striving for the truth the right way, we have to be mindful of the mistakes or the errors to our right. But then there's also, there's always equal and opposite errors to the left. And we tend to just go back and forth sometimes between these two ditches. So I want us to try to, to highlight these two ditches that we need to avoid as we are trying to move forward down the middle road of truth. So the first ditch we'll call the ditch of dependency and gluttony. The ditch of dependence and gluttony. This is a way to misuse the material world. This is when we misuse the world's goodness by trying to build our lives upon it as though it was the greatest and highest good. This is a mistake, I think, that's been made all throughout human history. I think it's probably the dominant mistake in human history. It's certainly the dominant mistake of our culture here in America. From this perspective, the only beauty that exists, the only goodness that exists, is the beauty and goodness of the world that we see and live in. The only true good is the good that we can touch and taste and feel and smell and hear. The only true, real good is this material world. So if you want to find meaning and purpose and hope, you've got to find it in the material world. So according to this logic, pull up a chair, tuck in your napkin, pick up your fork, and dig into all the goodness of the material world. Our whole culture is striving to lay hold of the goodness of the material world. And then, when we lay hold of it, we make ourselves drunk with it. American culture, in particular, revels in excess. It's kind of how we're known, not very flatteringly, around the world, right, is American excess. The more, the better is our motto. And what could be better than a nice house and a nice car and nice clothes and a nice meal and every pleasant bodily experience one can imagine. 
from sex to napping to Netflix to sunning at the beach, we value and we indulge ourselves in the goodness of the material world like it's our only hope. Indeed, we worship at the altar of the goodness of the material world. And because we depend upon it as though it is our only hope, we are devoted to it, we serve it, we work for it, we fight for it, we even kill for it. When you look at the geopolitical landscape and the history of warfare in the world, what are we fighting over? We're fighting over possession of the good things of this world. And not just geopolitically in grand uh, sweeping scales, but like even in our own lives. When we're in conflict with other people and we're fighting, we're fighting over possession so often of the good things of this material world. Maybe that's you this morning. You're trying, whether successfully or unsuccessfully, to find all of your hope in the good world that God has made. Perhaps you're doing this just as a straight, out-and-out, pagan, non-Christian, non-religious person. You don't even consider God as a factor in the pursuit of goodness. All you know is this world, and so you're just pursuing the goodness of this world because it's all you know and understand. All right, but maybe I would suspect most of us here, if we're making this mistake, if we're in this ditch, we're doing it as a Christian. We have our own kind of Christianized version of dependency and gluttony. You believe in God, to be sure. But if you're honest with yourself, he's not really your highest good. You think, if you were to have a moment of sober self-reflection, you actually think that your happiness is found in possessing the material goods of this world. And so what you do as a Christian or a religious person is you invoke God's help as you seek to acquire what you think will really be your blessing, the goods of this world. So God, help me get a job. God, help me get a house. God, help me get a child. God, help me get more money. And on and on it goes. God is a means to your goodness. But the goodness still lies here in this material world, in this mindset. You can't imagine being happy without the blessings of this world. Now, none of these things are wrong. God is the one who made these things. But they're not the keys to happiness and blessing. And deep down, we all actually know that this is true. Because every time we've finally laid hold of some long-sought-after blessing of this material world and have possessed it, we realize it actually doesn't bring any lasting happiness or joy to our lives. It can for a moment, but not, it doesn't really last. So the first wrong way to misuse the world's goodness is to try to build our lives upon it as though the goodness of the world was our ultimate and highest good. Now, the second ditch, the other ditch, the opposite ditch, runs in the exact kind of mirror opposite direction. I'll call this ditch the ditch of suspicion and rejection. 
And this is the mistake I think that devout Christians in particular are prone to making. We see the dangers of trying to find our ultimate meaning in the things of this world. It's easy to look out from behind the walls here of the sanctuary out into a decadent world that is indulging itself in gluttony, trying to find its meaning in the things of this world. And we then know that that is not right. It's not the way to go. So what we do is we jump out of that ditch right into the opposite ditch, the ditch of criticizing and rejecting the goodness of the world. Stoicism is making a bit of a comeback. I don't know if, if you know that or not. If you're a millennial or down, you might uh, be more aware of that. But a, a number of podcasts and like how to live your life and have your best life now is kind of advocating for Stoicism. Stoicism was a, it's a, a philosophy from the Greco-Roman world back 400 BC or earlier. And, uh, and so it's, it's making a bit of a resurgence and a recovery now as a way uh, to navigate life. And one of the there's a lot of actually uh, wise and helpful things in Stoicism, and uh, I enjoy reading the Stoics. But when it comes to the material world, it is, uh, it is absolutely deplorable. One of the key facets of Stoicism is this idea of detachment. The path to happiness is to detach yourself from everything. If you're detached emotionally from everything, in particular the material world, then when the material world goes away, you will not be disappointed, right? So detachment is the key. So the, the Stoics taught that the material world was a distraction at best or an evil at worst. The only true goodness lay outside the world in the realm of the soul and the realm of the gods. And the only way to navigate the material world was to let go of it, to push it away, to not be attached to it. So in the Stoic framework, death is seen as a good thing. It's an escape from the body. It's an escape from this world of materiality. It's seen as a way to transcend the limits of all this stuff that we live in. According to Marcus Aurelius, he was one of the uh, great Stoic teachers of the second century. He was actually a Roman emperor. He gave some counsel on how to avoid becoming preoccupied with the material world. And his, his insight was that you should think of the material world as base. So fine dishes are nothing more than the corpses of dead animals. Fine wine is merely grape juice. Sex is nothing more than the friction of a piece of gut. So when material things are attractive to you, Right? And they draw you in when they seem most worthy of our approval, Marcus Aurelius says, we must instead see that they are all just water, dust, bones, and stench. In other words, don't make much of the material world because the material world isn't worth making much of. Now, as I mentioned, this is the ditch that I think religious people, particularly devout religious people, are more likely to fall into than non-religious people. We see the excess and the indulgence of our culture, and we see how easy it is to become ensnared by the world's goodness and beauty. And we don't just see it out there in others, but we feel it in our own souls and our own hearts. We know how easy it is for us to become addicted to wine and sex and food and comfort. And so in an effort to avoid the gluttonous ditch on one side, we 
swing all the way over to the ascetic ditch on the other side. And we denigrate what God has made. And we begin to view the material world as an enemy to be fought against. And we begin to pray that one day we will escape the world and fly away into heaven, free at last from the confines of this mortal and material world. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe if you're honest, you actually don't really think too highly of the world. It's caused you too much trouble. It's caused the world too much trouble. Perhaps you go out of your way to chastise it and to put it in its place. You keep worldly pleasure on a short leash, a suspiciously short leash. What God has created and blessed as good, you've condemned and viewed as suspect. You deny yourself the world's pleasures, and when you do partake, you feel somewhat guilty about it. You feel guilty about enjoying wine and sex and food and comfort. You believe that spiritual people, truly spiritual people, really spiritual people, really godly people who see the world as it really is, don't get into that kind of stuff. Don't like those kind of things. Take no pleasure in them. In fact, if you had been in charge of creation, you would not have made clothing so nice or houses so comfortable or food tastes so good or women so beautiful or men so compelling. How much better and wiser it would have been if God had made everything taste like tofu, <laughs> just kind of bland and tasteless and undistracting, right? That it wouldn't, there'd be nothing here in this world that could take us away from what is the true good of the soul and the heavens. God has happily declared the material world to be very good, but you have sourly doubted it. Both of these ditches are dangers, or both of these dangers are ditches. And most of us, I think, we have kind of one, like our go-to ditch that we'll like fall into. But frequently, I think a lot of us, we just go back and forth on this, right? We eat the entire box of chocolate, and then we're like, no more chocolate. I'm done with chocolate. <laughs> right? We just go back and forth, back and forth. We don't know how to have moderation, so we just move back into asceticism. Right? But you can't live in asceticism and be happy because you're denying all the good things of the world, so then you jump back into indulging yourself. Back and forth we go. Back and forth we go. God didn't give us the world to depend upon as if it was our only good and to glut ourselves. And it's also no compliment to his creative generosity if we denigrate it and condemn it. So if we're going to avoid the ditch of dependence and gluttony on the left, and the ditch of suspicion and rejection on the right, how do we find the center of the road? What's the key to living down the center of the road? The key, we'll see in Romans chapter 1, is gratitude and thankfulness. So turn back to, Gen to Romans chapter 1. Let's catch the words of the Apostle Paul here. The whole theme of our sermon series is the story of the Bible and the healing of the world, right? The healing of the world because something went wrong, and so God's putting things right. 
And in Romans, the, the, the book of Romans is the Apostle Paul's theological account of how God is putting the world back together, right? how he's making things right. And he starts his account of the, kind of his theological account of the story of the world in Romans chapter 1. Really, he does it in verse 18, but it's right where, about where we're starting. And in verse 18 and 19, he talks about how things went wrong, right? Things went south. And then he's getting now to the nub of why it is that things went wrong. For Paul, creation is, at its core, a good gift that has been given to us by God as an expression of our true and ultimate good, God himself. For Paul, as he starts his whole account of how things went south and turned bad, he starts with creation. And he says, we've misused creation. And when we misused creation, everything came unraveled. And then he tells the rest of the story about how God puts it all back together. But I want to focus on his account of how our misuse has unraveled it and what he kind of zeroes in on as the, the precise misuse. Look at verse 20. Paul says this, For his, God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So according to Paul, creation has an iconic function to it. You know, an, an icon is, I think I mentioned this before, but an icon is, is something that points beyond itself to some other higher reality. So we have these now best known on our computers, on our video desktops, we have icons. And the, you click on the icon, it actually takes you to the program. The program is the thing that's kind of gives substance to the icon, right? The icon doesn't have any substance without its attachment to the program. According to Paul, creation, this material world, it's an icon that points beyond itself to a greater reality. Creation is a great sign that contains within itself an expression of the goodness of the one who made it. That's what Paul's saying in verse 20. As with any icon, creation derives its value and its meaning and its significance from that to which it points, namely God. So when we look at the beauty and the goodness of the world around us, we should see through it and beyond it to the beauty and the goodness of the God who made it. Creation is full of goodness, of God's goodness, because it was meant to point us to a God who is goodness himself, goodness personified. Thus, creation is a conduit of God's goodness. God pours out his goodness, as it were, and particularly, as we're going to see, he pours out his goodness to us as human beings through creation. Creation is the conduit of God's goodness. It's a great gift given to us by God, meant to connect us as his children to him as the creator. But something went wrong. Something went wrong. So Paul gets to. Humanity rejected the iconic nature of creation and instead tried to make creation not a conduit of God's goodness, but the source and the fount of God's goodness. Not something through which God's goodness flowed, 
but as though creation itself was the goodness. And then look at verses 21 and 22. We can see kind of what results from this. Maybe verse 22 in particular. Claiming to be wise, we human beings became fools. We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images, for the icons, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What God had given to us to point us to himself, we've taken and we focused on them independent of God. We became foolish in our thinking and we began to worship the created things, the creation rather than the creator. But how did this happen? How did we lose sight of the iconic nature of creation? How have we come to only stare at the goodness of the world and not see through the goodness of the world to the God who made it and who lies behind it? The answer, I think this is the pivot of Paul's whole logic in this passage and that sets in motion everything he's going to say then in Romans. The answer is found in verse 21. Look at verse 21. God makes the world as an icon, but although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That's when it went bad. We did not give thanks to God. The problem is not that we have failed to see the goodness of creation, but rather that we have failed to give thanks for it. There's two reasons why we don't give thanks for something good. Two reasons why we don't give thanks for this creation. We either fail to give thanks for the world because we wrongly think it's the sole independent good above which there is no other. So there's no one to thank. The world itself is the end. So who are we going to thank? From a completely naturalistic, atheistic perspective, there is no one to thank. Have you ever considered that for a moment? Perhaps you're kind of flirting with atheism or you're connecting with atheism. And that spirit of gratitude that you have inside of you, that you want to thank somebody, there's no one to thank. It just is all random happenstance. So we don't move towards thankfulness if we don't think that there is a God behind the gift that we've received. Or another reason we don't give thanks is because we forget that this creation is a good gift and reveals a good God. We don't give thanks for this creation because we think it gets in the way of the true good. That's the second ditch. Both of these, both ditches, the first ditch and the second ditch, refuse to give thanks. We we won't give thanks for this creation because we don't think there's anyone to thank, or we won't give thanks for this creation because we don't think it's good. Those are the two ditches that we're going to fall into. But when we give genuine thanks to God for the goodness of creation, we acknowledge that there is a God who is our highest good, who gave it to us. That's the first thing. That pulls us out of the ditch of gluttony and dependence. Right, Because we're acknowledging that there's a God who gave it, so we can't fall into that ditch. And we also, in our thankfulness, recognize that creation is an expression of God's goodness. Genuine thankfulness pulls us out of the dependence and gluttony ditch insofar as it reminds us that there is a higher good beyond the world 
that is the source of the world's goodness. And genuine thankfulness pulls us out of the rejection and suspicion ditch insofar as it reminds us that what God has made is good that reveals God's goodness. A posture of thankfulness saves us from both of these ditches in one move. At its core, thankfulness reestablishes the relationship between the good gift and the good giver. When that relationship gets broken, that's when you end up in either of the ditches. We have to hold on to the goodness of the gift and the goodness of the giver. In my family, my wife is um, very determined that we write the appropriate thank you cards. I don't know if you live in one of those homes, right? But if you get a gift from grandma, you have to write a thank you card. And, uh, but why, what's, the, what's, the, what's the burden behind that, right? The, the, gift, the, the, the gift has been received. Why is there this emphasis on thank you? We, we do this with our children. If we have children or if you've been a child, you maybe have experienced with the parents who are saying, say thank you, say thank you. Because thankfulness reestablishes the relationship between the gift and the giver. Imagine you give your kids uh, or someone, anybody, you give someone a gift, right? And the person is like, oh, thank you. I love this. And they turn their back on you. They want nothing to do with you. They just want to go play with the gift. You're like, hmm, that doesn't feel great, right? They're prioritizing the gift over you. Or imagine you give someone what you think is a fantastic gift, and they take it, they just throw it right in the trash, and they say, I don't need that gift, I just need you. You'd be like, eh, that doesn't feel right either, right? But when a kid accepts a gift and expresses and runs up and gives you a hug, and is so happy and expresses joy and thank you and this means so much and, you know, and, and it reminds me that you love me and that you care for me. They don't actually say all of that, right? But they're feeling it <laughs> in their heart. They're feeling it, right? That when we receive a gift with gratitude, we are remembering not only the goodness of the gift, but we are remembering and celebrating the goodness of the one that has given it. When both of those things need to be held together, and gratitude and thankfulness brings the gift and the giver back together. What the Apostle Paul is saying here in Romans 1 is that when the gift and the giver got separated, when we became focused on, and Paul's here got one ditch in mind, when we became focused on the gift and lost sight of the giver, the whole thing went south, right? We've got to bring the gift and the giver back together. The proper response to the goodness of the world is neither to worship it nor to despise it. The proper response is to be thankful for it. Thankfulness draws us towards the God who gave it. Now, that doesn't mean that we are always going to participate in the goodness of the world. Thankfulness and participating in the goodness of the world don't always necessarily need to go together. We can be thankful for the good things of this world that we are not participating in. In fact, we should be thankful for all the good things of this world, even, and most especially perhaps, even the things that we're not participating in. God wants us to be thankful for every good aspect of creation, but he doesn't want us to participate in every good act, aspect of creation. I mean, we get to Jesus, and he begins to teach us how to, to navigate and to live in this world, 
right? Thankfulness is the default setting. That's where we begin. But then we follow the path that God has for us, which invariably will mean that we don't just run out and participate in all the world's goodness. In fact, what we'll see the teaching of Jesus is he calls us to sacrifice. He calls us to let go of the goodness of the world. But here's the thing about sacrifice. The significance of sacrifice is that we're being asked to let go of things that are good. Right? God isn't asking us, Jesus isn't asking us to sacrifice things that are just bones, dust, and stench. There's no sacrifice in that. There's no sacrifice in Stoicism. But there is sacrifice in Christianity because we acknowledge the goodness of the world. We thank God for the goodness of the world. And then we let go of the goodness of the world, trusting that God's path for us is the truest path of blessing. We should be thankful for every aspect of the world's goodness, even those aspects that we don't possess. So don't neglect thankfulness. In a maybe perhaps counterintuitive way, it will keep us from dependence and gluttony, and it will keep us from suspicion and rejection. Is there something in your life that you are tempted to glut yourself on? And then what's your way out of that? To denigrate it, to put it out of your mind, to deny its goodness, to hate it because it's caused such problems in your life? To reject the goodness that has been built into it by God? To just go from one ditch to the other ditch? Right? It's counterintuitive, but do you know that when you are glutting yourself on something, the way out of that ditch is to thank God for it? It doesn't make sense sometimes. And I'll tell you this, it's hard work. It's hard work when you've like eaten the whole box of chocolates to start thanking God for chocolate, <laughs> right? But the surest way to not glut yourself on chocolate is to be thankful for chocolate. You take that to every aspect of your life that you are tempted to glut yourself on, is work hard to get to a posture of thankfulness. Because when you're thankful for the good thing that you're tempted to glut yourself on, if you're thankful, it's because you're connected back to God. And you're acknowledging who God is and the goodness of who God is. Right? And it's bringing you back to recognizing that thing as not an ultimate, but just a gift. Ultimately, a posture of genuine thankfulness will help you see God, who is the ultimate source or the ultimate source and our chief and our truest good. It's hard work to stay thankful. But this is the thing, the hard work, the first great work that human beings are called to be. God has poured so much bounty and blessing upon the world, and all he asks of us is to receive it with gratitude. It can be hard, but he asks us to just receive it with gratitude. God has given us a great created world full of his goodness, and he has given it to us because he loves us and because he wants us to know him. So let's stay thankful for what he's given to us. Jesus, of course, is the great icon he is the great material embodiment 
of who God is and God's goodness. Jesus, when he was with his disciples towards the end of his life, he was talking about the Father, and the disciples were so enamored by what Jesus was talking about with the Father, they said to Jesus, just show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Remember, you remember what Jesus said? He said, have I been with you this long, and you still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the true icon, the true image the true material reality that points to the invisible God. And when we see Jesus, we can see the whole world through the lens of Christ. When we have put the specs of Jesus on, it, it clarifies our capacity to see the whole world like we see Jesus, as an image and as an icon that takes us back to and points us to the glory and goodness of God. So much about Jesus and his mission the first time that he came was to begin to heal our capacity to see, to take away the smudges of our eyes so that we could see the world as it really is, as an icon of God, not its own hope, not as something to be denigrated, but as an icon of God. When he comes the second time, he's going to heal the world so that most fully shines and most fully clear uh, uh, with clarity reveals the goodness and the glory of God. We hold fast to Jesus. We behold Jesus in all of his materiality, knowing that it is as we see him for real and true that we behold the glory of God. So let's stay thankful for Jesus Let's stay thankful for the world that God has made and given to us as a good gift that reminds us of the true goodness that is God himself. Father, thank you that you have sent Jesus to clarify our vision. Forgive us all the times that we have fallen into these different ditches when we have tried to find our hope in the material things of this world. We've chased after things that can never really satisfy us because they, they're disconnected from you. There is no joy there. Forgive us, too, for trying to be more spiritual than you are, for rejecting the good gifts that you've given to us, thinking that we know better than you. We don't, Lord. We acknowledge that. God, just help us to be thankful. Help us to do the hard work of being thankful. Thank you, most of all, for Jesus who heals us and who heals our world. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.